Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Okay, we're in Matthew uh, 14 today. We're going to try to tackle the whole chapter. Um, Matthew is divided up into five major teachings of Jesus. And then after each of the teachings, you get these historical events. And I'm convinced that the events that we see in between the teachings exemplify the teachings themselves. So as we've been going through Matthew, that's kind of the, the at least the approach to it that we've taken. Uh, and the same thing's true in Matthew 14. If you want like a a letterhead for your notes today, like this is the faith chapter. So we get a lot of perspectives and ideas around what faith is, what it looks like, how it plays out. Um, and this is in a historical, a set of historical accounts, but I believe it goes hand in hand with the story of the seeds that we covered last week. And that this is how faith operates. And we see examples of each of the seeds in this chapter as it plays out, starting with a seed that's by the wayside where the enemy snatches it up. Uh, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. So Herod Antipas is... Um, is the son of Herod the Great. So back in chapter 2 of Matthew, we saw a Herod. This is not the same Herod. This is his son. The chapter 2, Herod the Great in, did infanticide. He killed all the Jewish babies that were out there. So you're thinking, wow, this is a guy who kills babies. Um, he had a, a number of sons. The word tetrarch in verse 1 means a fourth ruler. So what the Romans did, and I frankly think this is brilliant if you study Roman history, Roman leadership... <clears throat> They rewarded good rule, and they didn't care like where you came from. So Romans would take highly effective people, give them a small plot of land, and let them lead. So as the children of Herod the Great, they didn't automatically take over his territory. They split the territory into four smaller parts, and then you see which of the sons is the better leader. So the Romans would pit leaders against each other. If your rule was peaceful, and you collected a boatload of taxes for the emperor... You gained favor in Rome, and you rose through the ranks. If there was chaos in your area and you had a bunch of uprisings, you generally lost favor in Rome because they just want the tax money. Keep the money rolling so they can keep feeding the people. So um, <clears throat> here we have Herod Antipas. He's in charge of the Galilean area. He's got his brother Philip, who is just mentioned here in this passage. He's up in the northern part of Judea. And, and then his brother Archelaus is in the south. Uh, in, in the kind of the desert area. And then they got a brother Agrippa, but he only got to rule for like three years and he was out. So he was not an effective leader. He didn't hold his position. Um, and the area that he reigned was down in kind of the Edomite desert. Um, it's believed that Herod, there's some inclination that not only is Herod an Edomite, but he actually comes from the Melchite tribe. 
And the Amalekite tribe, which is interesting on Sunday nights, we're covering Samuel. Saul was instructed to wipe out the Amalekites and he disobeyed God and didn't do it. So part of the ramifications of that happening is Herod the Great creating, creating an infanticide on the Jewish people. So it's, part, it's one of those things where we see throughout the Bible the consequences of Saul's disobedience. This is one of them. Um, so this is a, a vassal of Rome. Rome's given the Herod's authority. Uh, they are part of these, this cousin tribe of the Middle East. Uh, Jesus started out by disappointing John the Baptist followers. Then he infuriated the Pharisees. Now he seems to be kind of at odds with Rome indirectly. And Rome is having these issues. So Rome has also heard the word of God and heard the story of Jesus. They've sent people and Herod knows what's going on. So when he hears about what's going on with Jesus and the miracles going on with Jesus, it says about Jesus, this reminds Herod of his whole situation with John the Baptist. And this is what Jesus does. When you bring up Jesus with people, it either makes them really joyful and happy or it reminds them of their sin that they haven't dealt with. And those are the, kind of the two outcomes. So when you're out spreading the seed of the word of God, there's people that react to it very differently. In this case, Herod's reminded of this John the Baptist character who he killed, verse 2. And people, uh, uh, people often died in jail cells, but that's not how John the Baptist died. Uh, we get this whole situation with him. Um, it mentions these powers in verse 2, and therefore these powers are at work in him being Jesus. Even the Romans understood that what Jesus was doing required a supernatural power. In fact, it's interesting that there's no indication in the first century, even the second century, that Jesus was anything other than a wonder worker. So it wasn't that they doubted his miraculous powers in the first century. They were eyewitnesses. They all saw it. Jesus acted in public. Uh, it's a historical accounting of it. It's only today that we start to doubt that Jesus had power. Uh, when we're far enough away to where the, the first-person witnesses can't defend what happened. Verse 3, um, it says, and John had said in verse 3. So this is, uh, <laughs> um, wait, for, later John put him in present. For his, oh, it's in verse 4. Because John had said to him. That's actually in the imperfect tense. Uh, so one way to read that passage is it's not just John had in the past tense said to him but that John is actually saying it to him again. And I think that's part of guilt and, and that shame of things. Even though you've gotten rid of John, there's this thing where John is still saying that to you in the back of your head. It's called seed planting, and we just had those parables about seeds being cast. So regardless of how far away people or culture fall away from God, when John said it, he knew it was right, and he was right in a... In a not in a particular sense, but in a general sense, because he spoke truth, and truth is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. So Herod, ignoring what's right, then attacks John, and he's not willing to actually deal with what's wrong with it. This is what you'd say is a hard heart, where the enemy plucking the seed up before it even begins to take root. Verse 4, what John said to him was simply, it's not lawful. Again, there's nothing in the New Testament that takes the law and gets rid of it. In fact, it's the law that brings people to a point of guilt, to recognize what they've done wrong so they know they need Jesus to deal with it. So the idea of um, what John did is he basically said what you're doing is wrong. And that's all it really takes to get somebody to kill you and chop your head off. What happens with... Uh, <laughs> so Herod divorced his own wife. And this gets to be... This is like... The Herods are like... 
the Kardashians of the first century. Like, the, it's messed up. So Herod was off in Rome. He liked his brother Philip's wife. He convinced her to leave Philip and come marry him, but he also had his own wife, who the Ennet had to put off. But the problem is the wife, the first wife that he put off was the princess of Petra. So that started a conflict with the, the area or the, the prince of Petra and later a war with Petra, which actually is going to cost Herod his seat um, in that sense. The daughter then um, of these two people is Salome. And this is where she's the daughter that dances, and that's what we get into next. Um, do take note with Herod that he fears the multitude. This isn't a strong leader. He's worried about what people think about him. He's making bad decisions accordingly. Verse 6, But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias, that's Salome, danced before them and pleased Herod. So the, in verse 11, they'll use the word girl for her, meaning she's probably around 14, 15 years old marriageable age in the first century, so she could get married, but also you're taking a little girl and dancing her in front of your court and all the people at your party. So this is not the kind of behavior that you would have a princess doing even in the Roman Empire. This is really belittling of a young lady, uh, especially a lady that's supposed to be of eligible mage. So maybe Herod's trying to like parade her out in front of everybody because she's really cute and he wants somebody to try to marry her. Um, but when you see, when it says dancing, uh, in verse six, the idea of Roman dancing was always to entice. They didn't have just like line dancing or anything like that. Like their kind of dancing was more like a belly dancer kind of situation. So she got marched out in front of all these people, a 14, 15 year old girl. And, um, verse seven, therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. If you do this, I'll give you whatever you ask. So her mom coaches her, verse 8. So he, having been prompted by, she, having been prompted by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Here being immediate, like, I want it right now. Because he's made this vow. It kind of echoes of Saul making his vows. And just in the Old Testament, we see a lot of this. Um, but the idea of putting it on a platter and serving it up like food, uh, you get a sense of just the brutality of the Roman Empire and you know, when you're in a prison, in a Roman prison cell, they don't feed you. They expect you to just die there. So John was already kind of had the death sentence of being put in a Roman prison, but his disciples would bring him food um, because they didn't bother to put necessarily guards on all their jail cells, which makes it unique when they do put a guard on Paul and Silas later on. Um, but they would throw him in a cell, lock him up, and forget about him, and that's generally where they would die. Um, so to go in and actually kill him and put him on a platter shows this clearly her mother was offended by the fact that John came in and said what you're doing is wrong and we've all run into people where when you kindly and gently and I don't think John the Baptist was kind or gentle at all he was very brutal with his truth what you're doing is wrong it's against God's law um, so in saying that you will sometimes get a brutal response from the world uh, in the form of just that straight-out attack. So in verse 9, it's interesting that the king was sorry. And he's sorry because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her, nevertheless. So the idea that he's sorry is like he didn't want to kill John in this kind of way. Um, he's scared of what it might do to the Jewish people, that there might be some revolt, which would hurt him politically. Does this all make sense, like the politics behind this? But he made this big vow, he did it in front of people, 
Uh, he got trapped by a savvy woman who knows how to get him. Um, and she played off his pride. Verse 10, so he sent and had John beheaded in prison and his head was brought on a platter, which is a serving plate for food and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Huge shift in what's going on with the Romans. We already dealt with the the religious leadership of the Jews and and what happened between Jesus and them. But here you get this shift of something that's happening with the Roman Empire. Now the Romans are starting to be a little more hostile towards this kingdom of God talk. Herod's uh, wickedness, John the Baptist's disciples, the multitudes, and Jesus' disciples are all getting mentioned in this chapter. And that's four different groups of people. You got the wicked, you got the John the Baptist disciples, you got the multitudes, and you got Jesus' disciples. And I'm going to suggest that these look a lot like our four types of seeds and the, the different ones. So this is how the world reacts to when a godly person speaks the word of God, is they can get brutal and violent and put people's heads on a platter. Um, so Jesus himself is going to end up on a cross, right? This is what they do. This is what wicked people do. So there's lots of people that receive the word, but evil snaps it up just like the wayside seeds. Nothing grows. There's no room for it. The ground is hardened. So that just like the heart gets hardened, there's no getting to Herod because he's hardened his heart. Verse nine, the king there, the word is, it should be in a small K, not a capital. It's not the king like the emperor of Rome, but it's Basilius. It's a loose use of the word. Because frankly, Herod's not actually a king. He might call himself a king, but it's going to be a Basilius or a lowercase king. He's actually a tetrarch. And we got that title earlier in the chapter. So he's a a commander. He's a fake king, so to speak. And the king was very sorry. He knew what he was doing was wrong. Perhaps just like the seed on a wayside, they know that this is wrong. And snatch, having the enemy snatch up that seed is not a good situation. And, and Herod never really hears Jesus for himself. He, he's sorry about what's happening to John, but he never, he maybe had a heart that was going to be receptive to the, the kingdom. But because of who he's surrounding himself with, the culture that he lives in, like there's just no room for that seed to grow. Uh, and this is something where if you really wanted to witness to Herod, get him away from these women. Get him away from all of his friends he's trying to impress. Like he's got to just come to church and maybe leave his kingly robes at home and take that pride away. But that's a lot of things to expect to happen there. Um, But the fact that he's sorry, I just think that's really interesting. It reminds me of Romans 2.15. Those who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience is also a witness between themselves, their thoughts, accusing or else excusing. What we can do is God's put the law of God in our hearts. Herod knows it's wrong to do this, even though he's not a follower of Jesus. There are lots of really good people that don't follow Jesus. And we know these people, right? They're doing what they think is right in their own eyes. They're living their lives, and they're small g good people. They're not holy, and they're not pursuing righteousness, but they're nice, and they're good people. And what happens with those hearts is they generally harden over time, and they don't make room for the ways of God or the kingdom of God. So the idea that this wickedness can be super destructive uh, is when that spirit can't be broken, just like when the soil can't be broken, when it's packed down over travel and over time. It's why kids have an easier time getting into the kingdom than adults do. So Herod and Herodias later get accused of treason. They're banished to France, and they commit suicide. Like, their lives aren't going anywhere. 
So even though he's at this thing where he's at a party celebrating his birthday, we need to know that the future of these folks is absolutely broken and devastated. What's going on in Herod's heart eventually leads, leads him to suicide because it's not a fruitful way to live. And that hard-heartedness is not going to end up doing any good for these people. So being the people that scatter the seeds, we still go up to these people and say, if you want to get right with God, first you need to stop having adulterous sex with Philip's wife. Like, take care of the things you're doing that are clearly against God's law. John does that, he gets killed for it. Verse 12, the disciples notice, go in and they tell Jesus. So it doesn't say that they follow Jesus. We've had John the Baptist's disciples interact with Jesus a few times now. It doesn't say they follow Jesus. There's no indication that they ever follow Jesus. But there is an indication that they go and communicate to Jesus so that he knows what's going on. They take away the body and they bury it. I love that line. This is one of those things in the Christian world, in the Jewish world, once the body is dead, the spirit of the person isn't there anymore. So notice that they didn't bury him, they buried it. It's just a body. It's just a hunk of meat that gets thrown in a hole after the person has left the body. So it's worded perfectly. They really can't bury John. All they can do is bury John's body. And this is something that I think Herod inherently knows too, because he's thinking that Jesus is the resurrected version of John the Baptist. And some historians, even in the first century, uh, John and, and Jesus were cousins, but the early church um, would report that they looked almost identical, that the physical appearance of John and Jesus were very similar looks. Um, so that might have led to some of this too, but that's not in the Bible. It never says that. It's just kind of extra first century texts. So in chapter 9, the disciples question Jesus about fasting. Jesus doesn't turn out to be what they expected. In chapter 11, likely the same disciples ask to, for a report for John. And it's probably those very same disciples that come back and say, well, now John's dead because maybe Jesus didn't do anything about it and he let this happen. So verse 13, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. I think this is, looks like mourning to me. Like this is sometimes you just need to be alone. And Jesus has been working, going morning till night with these multitudes and he just kind of takes off and gets a place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. I don't know how else they would follow him, but they follow him on foot. Likely, John the Baptist was Jesus' closest friend growing up. We know their moms got along with each other. We know they both were committed to the Lord. We know that we, when we find John as an adult, he's a prophet in the wilderness. Like, a relationship with Jesus has made John a very different kind of person. And it had to be devastating for Jesus to hear that his friend lost his head. On the other hand, Jesus is fully God. He knew it was going to happen. And this is part of the price that they were going to pay to go down this path. So he departs. Uh, in chapter 8, Jesus departed the multitudes again. He's not seeking the crowds. The crowds are seeking him. That's significant because I think in the flesh, we got a lot of people that seek the crowds um, versus just seeking those relationships with people. So they followed him. What else are you going to do? I, you know, Herod's got all this chaos. The governing powers of the day are an absolute soap opera. And then you got Jesus over here who's worthy of being followed. So when the multitudes hear it, they follow him. They don't, it, Herod's actions didn't stop this movement of Jesus. And maybe that's part of what Herod thought might happen. You know, there's a civic execution and then the government kind of overreaches, but the exact opposite happens 
that drives the multitudes to follow a real king, not a fake king. And I think that that's one of the things where a lot of times Christians get worried about when societies or situations get ugly. You know, what's happening in Eastern Europe right now looks really ugly. But what God can do in those situations is show the truth and the power of the people who live there. So look it up. There's some great images of people just falling to their knees in prayer. Um, And the power of God can be displayed in those situations too. Uh, What else do you have to follow? Because Herod's a nut. So at that point, it's like, do you follow Herod or do you follow a real king? The contrast is Jesus not fearing the multitude. He actually walks away from them. And then back in verse 5, Herod fears the multitude and tries to endear himself to them. There's crowd pleasers and then there's Jesus. And the contrast is pretty clear. Um, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. The heart of a believer, someone who follows Jesus Christ, I think this is the beginning of faith as we go through the faith chapter, that Jesus isn't terrified by Herod at all. He's not worried about what the Romans are doing. He's going to just continue to do his thing. So John 6 shows that during this is all happening during uh, Passover, which starts to explain why there's these massive numbers of people following Jesus is because they're already moving for Passover. It's kind of this big commuting time. Then we get to verse 14, and those multitudes need food. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. And he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Stop for a moment and wreck. Like, here's Jesus mourning his cousin's death. He comes out of maybe a tent. I don't know. It says he went out. So he gets up and he looks at this massive multitude. And the response from him isn't, leave me alone. I need my alone time. The response of Jesus is compassion and love. And he sees these people and he's like, man, there's so much work to do. And he puts his own stuff to the side and he, he buckles down and he, and he gets to work. So 15 says, when it was evening, implying that Jesus was working with the multitudes all day. You know, he, anybody would be exhausted in the flesh. His disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour's already late. Send the multitudes away that they might go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. So Jesus is going to use this as an opportunity to train his disciples. In Mark chapter 6, when Jesus came out in this situation and he saw many people, he was moved with compassion towards them. And in Matthew, it gives a reason why he was compassionate. Because there was, there were, they were his sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So what we see in the book of Mark is a focus on the fact that Jesus was teaching the multitudes all day. And he was teaching God's path, the kingdom of God. We've already heard that back in chapters 5 and 7. Matthew focuses on the fact that he was healing them. Um, and that he's working with them. Likely it's both. It's not that that's a conflict. It's just that one author is highlighting different aspects. So they want to serve God. And they get ripped off with false teachers and false worship, these Pharisees. The word of God feeds the souls, so the multitudes follow where the food is. And then the spirit of God heals the soul. So Jesus wants peace and quiet. He doesn't do it. He gets moved with compassion. Um, And we know Jesus' motive is that he loves the flock. He loves hanging out with people. It's a joy and it's not a burden. Um, You know, I think that's one of the things on Sunday we sit down and, and what a privilege and a joy it is to teach God's word, to sing worship, to fellowship, to eat, to make food for one another, 
to pray for one another. Like we don't do that because it's a burden. We do it because it's absolute joy and it refreshes us for the week. It, it's what makes us who we are. And I see Jesus just doing the same thing. When he's in his deepest pain, he spends time with the flock. And, and sometimes people go the opposite direction. When they got, uh, when they when they're in pain, they actually leave the flock and they get out of fellowship. And then it gets worse. And the right response when you're in pain and when you're hurting and when you're broken is to be with the flock. Um, so the disciples want to send the multitudes away. This is, you know, he's got to teach them. Uh, instead of asking Jesus, hey, what should we do? Because they know Jesus can do miracles. They come to him and they tell him what to do. And their reasoning's logical. There's no food and there's a lot of people. That's in the flesh. Perfectly reasonable thinking to say that we need to give these people some food. But it isn't faith in Jesus. And faith in Jesus isn't always a logical process. Faith in Jesus is at times understanding what God's calling us to do and having faith that it's going to happen. So there's no reason for this miracle. They could have sent them back to the cities. Jesus could have just had some time on his own. So I think one of the interesting things about feeding of the thousands is that it's something that could have easily been skipped. But Jesus, out of compassion, says, yeah, no, that's something we need to learn here. So he just got done teaching about the seeds and the sower. Some seeds take root, some don't, some get snatched up. The church has sin or leaven in it. There's tares until judgment. Remember last week and last two weeks ago? Um, here we get this idea or this attitude that Jesus has towards the casual followers, right? So let's feed them because we don't know which one of them is going to be tares and wheat. Again, these are the parables from the last chapter. So here's this massive crowd of people and you don't know who the dedicated people are and you don't know who the future followers are. And Jesus' response is to not try to sort them out or figure that out. And don't send them away. So he just got done teaching about this via parable uh, that the disciples want to send the people away. And Jesus says they don't need to go away. Everyone can hear God's word. That's the open door. And the church does this all the time where they try to like tell people that you have to have a set of beliefs in order to come to church. And I think you need to have a set of beliefs if you want to go to heaven. But everybody can come to church and hear God's word get taught. Like that's an absolute open door. And Jesus is the same way. He says, you give them something to eat. In the Greek, that you there is emphatic. Uh, you have this plan. You make your plan happen. So Jesus redirects it saying you need to feed them. But obviously the disciples are helpless to do that. So he gives them a command. But when God gives the command, he actually gives them what they need to do it. So... When we're given the word of God, we often don't know how to do it or what to do, um, but we're, we, we do know what the direction is. The direction is really clear. And here it's feed, you give them something to eat. That's the direction. So when Jesus, or when God tells Moses to free his people from Egypt, Moses had no idea how to do that. But he started taking steps. When he told Joshua to march around Jericho seven times, that made no sense whatsoever. But sometimes faith doesn't make sense. It's what God told him to do. When he told the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites, they didn't know exactly how to get that done. But the idea is to start moving and doing it. And the tribes that did it were more blessed than the tribes that didn't. So this command of Jesus forces the disciples to take stock with what they have. And this is one of those kind of practical things. It's one thing to dream big, let's feed 5,000 people. It's another thing to just take stock of what you have and start using what you got to do what God's given you. 
So this is the mustard seed of faith, taking a little bit of nothing, and God can multiply that faith. And I, we've all heard this story a bunch of times, so verse 17 is not a surprise. And they said to them, we have here only five loaves and two fish. What's beautiful about that is they've taken stock of what they have in front of them. And then they give it to Jesus, and they let Jesus use whatever they have. So John 6 says they get these loaves and fishes from some kid. So, that, you know, what they need, they don't even have themselves. They get it from a kid who comes up and says, I've got food you can share in a truly innocent, beautiful way that the kid does this. So the things of the world, the rational understanding, they've got their eyes in the wrong place. And Jesus is trying to redirect their eyeballs. Uh, in faith, you just start portioning out the five loaves and the, the, the two fish. In faith, you just start doing what you need to do with what you have. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, but without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. That's the essence, Romans, uh, or Hebrews chapter 11. So God, I have so little, but whatever I have, I'm just going to give it to you and start doing what you call me to do. I, you can have everything that I have. And I honestly believe that when you look at this chapter, like that kind of faith is what Jesus is training the disciples for. So he says in verse 18, bring them here to me. So basically to the disciples, they're like, we only have this. And he says, then bring them to me. Whatever they have, they bring to Jesus. They put it at Jesus' feet and say, you can have it. So the truth of the matter is the disciples can't do anything. They're helpless. They don't have the resources. They don't have the ability to feed thousands. But God's always said, the harvest is mine. This is my field, my crops. We're just workers in there. So if you want to work in another field, good luck. Or you can serve the Lord of the harvest with, the, with what little we have, we offer it to Jesus. And I honestly think that that kind of faith, that little bit of faith, that tiny bit of faith, is what the rest of the, the chapter is kind of emphasizing or talking about. Give me what I have, and God, can, and God says, I'll use that. That's the miracle, and that's how God's going to use his disciples. I believe we're made for this kind of faith. When you live this way, it feels great because we can give God pretty much nothing, and God multiplies that into something, and that's an amazing way to live. And when we live that way, it gets easier and easier to do that. That exuberance in the kingdom is generative over time. So put a little pause between verse 18 and verse 19. Jesus says, bring those to me. What were the disciples thinking right after Jesus? Like, really? That, you're going to do something with these? But I think that's the moment of faith, the, the, between the lines of verse 18 and verse 19. That's the moment of faith for these disciples. Can they bring to Jesus what they have? And in doing that, that's what faith is. That's the essence of faith. Lord, I've got this much, but you can have it. And, and we trust that the Lord's going to do whatever he can do with it. So then in verse 19... Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. Now God just takes over. He starts telling the multitudes what to do, not the disciples. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. Jesus didn't need to use the disciples for this at all, but he does. And I take such courage. Like, for me, that's so... Why would the God of the universe need us for anything? And the reality is he doesn't but he wants to work with us. He wants to be doing things through us. And when he brings the disciples on board for this, they haven't done anything to earn it. They really didn't produce anything. A little boy brought them what they had. 
and then God decides to use them. And this is a big moment for the disciples because when they get to be in a position where they're just handing out food to everybody and it just keeps popping out of their baskets, that had to be a rush. And it had to, for some of the disciples, maybe it even went to their head, like, I really like being in a position where I get to just hand out the food. This is great. So verse 20, they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. So clearly there's a supernatural miracle. Now, and the counting, I think, adds to that too. Like, Matthew's trying to make the point that this wasn't just that we miscounted things. Like, he's, an, he's, he's a tax guy. Like, he knows how to count. This is Matthew's area of expertise. So he adds the count in there. Verse 21, Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children, which cranks that number up. Uh, just double it for the women. That's 10,000. And children would be roughly one to two per couple. So we're talking about close to 20,000 people that just got fed with a very small amount of food. That's the faith of a mustard seed. So when Jesus says, bring them here to me, that's the message that goes way beyond this story. When we tell people about Jesus, we don't just tell them, we bring them to a place where they can hear more. This is where the food is. So we say, come and do this. This is the kind of the, the come and see, which is a popular kind of phrase in the Christian world right now. It, it misses the point if we don't bring them to where they can hear more and get fed. If we send the multitudes away, this never happens. But if we tell the multitudes to come close and continue to feed them the bread of the word of God, that's where miracles can happen. So he took the five loaves and the two fish. He blesses it, involving God, thanking him for the provision. And then God just blesses it and moves forward with it. The disciples get to hand it out. So back in Matthew 13... There's a second kind of seed, or the third kind of seed. Actually, the fourth. There's four seeds. But in Matthew 13, 8, it says, But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. God chooses to use us. And when we give God even a little bit of faith, that's that seed growing, the Word of God growing in our hearts. Look at how God uses people. And in this case, He uses a bunch of like clueless disciples to feed 20,000 people. I just think that's beautiful. He's training them. See the need, which they do. We don't have food, Lord. Number two, take what you have. They gather it together. They take stock of what they have. Then they give it to Jesus, step three. And then they wait for the empowerment of God by blessing it and letting God take it away. What if Jesus held up the food, blessed it, gave it the disciples to hand out, and it didn't multiply? Would the command have changed one bit? And I would venture to say no. They would be handing out two loaves of bread in very small little chunks to as many people as they could. To start handing out the first fish or the first loaf, that's the act of faith. And in retrospect, we think, well, of course, they multiplied in the basket. But that's really, let's give the disciples credit for just handing out that first, here you go, here you go, here you go, because in their head, they're going to run out after like five, six people. But when they just kept saying, here you go, here you go, here you go, what a great, all of a sudden you start to realize God's doing this and God's making it all happen. See the need, take what you've got, give it to God and wait for God to empower it. But we don't just wait for the miracle to do those things. We do those things before we ever see a miracle. That's faith. And that's how faith works. So he's training them. He got done teaching them not to worry and not to focus on scarcity. Expect our version of Jesus don't worry about what's going on over in Herod's courts, how we started the chapter. Okay, John the Baptist just got beheaded. We're still going to provide food to the people around us. 
Let's not focus on the Ukraine right now. Let's focus on how many people can we get the word of God to as possible and taking what we have to make that happen. And maybe we know people in the Ukraine. Maybe we can get, we have resources we can send that way or do something. Uh, so those kinds of things that God lays on our hearts to do, we need to find ways to do it as best we can and just start taking the next step in that direction. So, and I struggle with doubt too. We were just talking before the teaching today. Like, I don't know if anybody's going to show up for that class we're running. So, but I'm still going to say, let's put the sign-up sheet out there. Let's see what happens. Let's start moving in that direction. And then at the end of the week, if nobody's signed up, okay, at least I gave what I had to make it happen. But if Amy's right and the Lord's just going to fill that thing up, praise the Lord. And God gets all the glory because I didn't figure out how to make that happen on my own. And what a better place to live. Aren't we wired for that where we can just give God all the glory and make all that happen? Because it's not our fish or our loaves. We don't even have, we can't even take credit for that. Verse 20, so they ate and they were filled. All of the miracle that just happened here was out of a humble obedience to Jesus. Legalists can't figure that out. Skepticism doesn't even take the first step. And permissiveness of sin doesn't even get to be around Jesus. So the only thing that makes this happen is the Word of God and the Spirit of God making that happen. And that's purest, and some people don't like that kind of like narrow vision of the, how that works, but when you see it biblically, it's the Word of God and the Spirit of God that makes these things happen. So surely the multitudes will turn to Jesus, right? Surely he's about to have 20,000 followers. That is not what happens. So he's casting the seeds, throwing all this stuff out there, and not everyone necessarily comes to follow Jesus. His disciple crew is still fairly small. So you could say that the multitudes are like lukewarm Christians. But think of who's in this crowd. Like characters we're going to see later that show up, in all likelihood, because this is Passover and people listening to Jesus, probably Matthias was in this crowd and saw this happen. Maybe Justice, maybe Stephen who gets uh, the first martyr. Maybe even Nicodemus is in this crowd. Like, one question is like, who's in the multitude? And when Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares growing up together, and at the judgment day, he'll sort them out, Jesus is going to feed everybody. And honestly, when we see loaves and fish, we're thinking about the word of God going forth. And we saw that in, in, in he's teaching people and including feeding them. Um, maybe Paul is even in this audience. He's all judgy and mad at this point. And we would think as Christians, clearly that guy's a tear. He doesn't belong with the wheat. But God thinks quite opposite of that. And that Paul would have seen some of these things as he got himself riled up to persecute Christians. So I wonder who's in this crowd. Jesus and God knows exactly who's experiencing this miracle and who's not. He knows exactly what's going to happen to their hearts going forward. And there's no accidents. So when they take up the leftovers of 12 baskets, undeniably God has acted. And when God, and another spiritual lesson here, when God does provide, he provides in abundance. There's no reason for the extra 12 baskets other than God saying, if you give me what little you have, I can make that into something way more. Some 40, some 100, some 60. You know, the God can multiply those things and he does it with abundance. And I should caution myself because prosperity gospel is pretty big right now. This does not mean give God your 401k and he'll multiply it. That's not what this is. Give God what he's asked for, and he can multiply that. That's faith. So in verse 21, the 5,000 men, women, children, were thinking about who's in that crew, what they are, but this is the new kingdom of God. This is a kingdom that follows Jesus, not Herod. 
and they don't live in fear of what Herod's going to do to them because now we know Herod cuts heads off. That's a terrifying prospect that none of us have to really worry about, but early Christians absolutely had to worry about that. That was a completely real possibility. So does that mean they don't follow Jesus? No, they follow anyways. Because where else will we go, as Peter says? You have the words of life. So he teaches, he gives examples, then he gives these teaching examples. That's Matthew's structure. So you've got this idea of, of total authority over creation and the harvest, and that is God's. And then we get this image of him walking on the sea. Verse 22, Matthew puts in this word very intentionally, immediately. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. The disciples are probably getting a little bit of fame and you know, the temptation would be for them to get a lot of praise way before they, they're ready for that praise. And Jesus knows that because they could turn themselves into little messiahs themselves. Look at how they made all this food. But Jesus immediately gets them out of that situation. The word immediately there, we should link the two stories as Matthew's linking them verbally and, 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 and with the language he's choosing. Um, the two stories go together, absolutely. And this is for me where I thought this got kind of interesting. We just saw a story about how the disciples took a very little bit of faith, what I would call baby faith, and God turned it into something amazing. Jesus showed them how to do it. Now he's going to let them try it for themselves. And we're going to be in a totally different situation, but the issue of faith is still absolutely what's at question here. So immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So Jesus does this wonderful thing with them, and then he sends them off on his own, and he goes away for a little while. Sound familiar? It's not that Jesus disappears. He's actually praying, and he's spending that time in prayer. He's getting that time to um, let his disciples get in the middle of the storm on their own because he wants to see what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. It's really easy when Jesus is there verbally telling you what to do. It's not so easy when we have to deal with the fact that Jesus is with us in spirit, but we still have to figure out what to do. So, again, we see Jesus walking away from large crowds. He consistently does this. Uh, he does, maybe it's because the, if the crowds get too big, Rome will pay more attention, and he's not ready for that to happen yet. But despite all the success of this miracle, Jesus takes time in prayer. So he's, again, modeling for us. What do we do at, after a miracle happens? And when we do see God moving and doing things, when we see somebody giving their life to the kingdom, how should we react to that? And for Jesus, like, he tells the disciples to get themselves out of the limelight. And for him, he just goes and prays and spends time with the Lord. And I just think that's so humble and wonderful. Jesus made his disciples. The Greek there shows this is an absolute authoritative command as though Jesus is using force and his position of authority. So it's, when it says Jesus made his disciples, it implies the disciples are re resisting that command and he forces them to. So it's an emphatic kind of a phrase there. Um, likely the disciples didn't want to leave this awesome situation where they're handing out all this food. It, likely they didn't want to leave their Lord when they're seeing what the Lord's doing. So in verse 23, we, we see God praying. Uh, this is an interesting thing. And, 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 you know, you may struggle with this more than I do. So Jesus is talking to himself? Because if Jesus is fully God, 
and yet he prays to a father God in heaven, is that making them two different beings or are we still dealing with the same person? And there are folks that really struggle with those sorts of things. I think everything we see from Jesus in context is that he lives in a way that we're supposed to live. So when he says, follow me, he's showing us how to do these things. So part of faith is our time in prayer that we spend with the Lord. Jesus does this not only because he's fully God, but he's also fully human. And this God that relates to himself, going all the way back to Genesis 1-1, God likes to spend some time with himself in the same way that we get off alone, just to be on our own and get our thoughts in order. So this kind of prayer that God's doing here, I don't think is one that separates the Trinity in any significant way, any more so than we don't separate ourselves from ourselves when we get alone time. Like, that makes no sense at all. So for God to go and spend time on his own where Jesus is praying to God is very similar to us getting time on our own where we can get our thoughts in order and think. Um, And Jesus is modeling it for his disciples that this is what you do. Okay, here's the other piece. The imagery on this, this is just wonderful. Right after this big victory feeding all these people, now the disciples are alone in a boat without their Savior in the middle of a storm. And that tends to be how it goes. And that when we have these big spiritual victories, they often go right into a big storm. So the wind was contrary. Um, Mark, in Mark chapter 6, when he tells the stories, the disciples are actually trying to row the boat against the wind, which is what the word contrary means in Matthew. Um, if we've ever tried to do this, like I remember Steph and Katie went out on their kayaks and the wind picked up and they were trying to row against the wind. It's a futile thing. And you get exhausted and your muscles get sore to the point where you're about to cry because you can't win. When we do things without our Lord, that's what ministry feels like. It's a perfect image. The storms of life happen and we're trying to do ministry and the Lord's not with us on it. It just gets to be like futility. And and everything goes sour quick when that happens. If we just do what the Lord's put in front of us, we give God what we have, Um, then we have this heart that's got a broken ground to it, a soil that's ready to receive God's word. And I, you know, I like the attitude that that we, again, we have talks before we do the teachings, but the one where you were saying where it's like, if I'm wrong, I want to fix my heart. And that's soft soil versus I'm right and I know it. And let me prove it to everybody. That's hard soil. But these disciples are getting trained what that looks like through these really obvious kind of images that are there, but they're in the middle of the image. So for fishermen to say the wind was contrary, um, these are experienced people. They know boats. They had, you know, Peter, James, John, they're all experienced fishermen, Andrew. So when they're saying that and they're in this point where they're trying to row against the wind, it has to be terrifying for them because they know how serious this situation is. And we should feel the same way in the ministry. When we're doing things and there's no fruit to it, we have to realize how serious that situation is. It's a life-threatening spiritual problem. Um, and, I, and, and it's one that I just pray we never fall into. Matthew 13, But other seeds fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. What does a good crop look like in the middle of a storm? What does that kind of heart, heart look like? Um, for starters, we don't do it alone. They're in the boat with other disciples. That's a good start that we don't go out and do ministry on our, on our own. And there's a lot of maverick ministry people. They're just off doing stuff on their own, and that's not how to do it. It's not the example we see in the Bible. Jesus sends people out in twos. He doesn't send them out on their own. 
without Jesus, we're just rowing contrary to the wind. You get the image? Now on the fourth watch, that's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., right? The blue hours of the morning where everything, I don't know if you've stayed up that late, but something happens around like 4 o'clock. Everything looks blue. Is that just me? Or Okay, all right. In the fourth watch of the night, when Jesus went to them walking on the sea. So he's just strolling along, walking on the sea. Uh, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, in case we didn't get that in the last one, they were troubled saying, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Again, send the people away, there's nothing to eat. That is a reasonable thing to say. There's nothing wrong with saying that because it makes sense. Sometimes faith doesn't make sense. When you see a guy walking on the water in the middle of a storm, and there's rain and mists everywhere, you think it's a ghost. That's a reasonable thing for the disciples to say because they all see the same thing. So it's not just somebody losing their brain, right? Some people don't believe in miracles. It's hard to not believe in miracles when you see them. And I think it's something when we're, again, that we're not with the multitudes right now. We're just with the disciples. And the disciples have, like, at some point, they had to talk about what they saw or else they just think they're going nuts. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you could all be in the boat and see some dude walking on the water and just keep rowing against the wind and not talk to one another. But at some point, somebody on the boat had to say, do you guys see Jesus over there? Yeah, I actually do. I thought I was going nuts, but it must be a ghost of Jesus. Maybe we're just seeing things. The whole time, they're trying to stay alive. They're in the middle of the storm or they're rowing without their Jesus and they see something starting to happen, but it's over there. It's not in the boat with them. I just, the imagery here is so powerful. So further on this issue of miracles, these people in the boat, most of them went to their deaths making these claims of what happened. So if it's not true, I'm not going to my death. I'm not going to go to my grave over something. These people went to their grave attesting to what happened here. So they're claiming that this happened. But immediately, again, we see the word immediately. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. It's I. Don't be afraid. What a wonderful thing for God to say. Don't be afraid. It's me. Assuming the disciples knew exactly who Jesus was. Jesus was the person that when Jesus is around, we're of good cheer. Even when the storms are blowing everywhere. Don't worry about it. It's me. I got this. God's still on his throne. Um, the idea of immediately in verse 27, the immediately for this is as they're terrified, thinking a ghost and they cry out in fear, but immediately. Jesus doesn't let his people be in fear for long. Like, I love the fact that Jesus immediately stopped the fear, because that's not faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. And he calms them down while the storm is still going. Note the order of events. Immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be a good cheer, don't be afraid. He's saying that while there's still a storm happening everywhere. So the faith that's required here, this little bit of faith that's required, happens while the storm is going on. Just like the faith that hand out the food happened before the food was evident. Faith means taking that step. So don't be afraid. God's in control, even in relation to this storm. And then you get Peter. This is awesome. This is where Peter stands out. So far in Matthew, it's been 12 disciples. But then one of them the roots of that seed go right down into the soil and something new starts to happen. And Peter's the one where it happens. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, getting confirmation, command me to come to you on the water. I love the fact that he doesn't step out of the boat. 
I've, I've heard teachings where he just jumps out of the boat. No, he doesn't. He asks for confirmation before he gets out of that boat. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Jesus gives him the command. He, he's not moving without the command of the Lord. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And it, there is no way to interpret that where this is anything but a miracle. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. So the fear is the opposite of faith. And, be, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. I think this is so great. This is the same thing as the, if, you, if you catch the way Matthew's putting these two together. The loaves and fishes, we don't have any food. All we have is the lo- this five fish and two loaves, or was it the other way around? Five loaves, two fishes. That's all we got. And he's just like, bring them to me. And in the same sense, Matthew, Peter has learned that when things look horrible, the right thing to say is, Lord, save me. This is a really good prayer to memorize because it's only three words. And it's a super powerful prayer. Lord, save me. Lord, get me out of this one. Take care of me here. And immediately we see the word, how many times now? Three. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith. Why'd you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now the wind ceases after the lesson is done. Acts of faith often happen when we don't know what the resources are and, we, and it doesn't look like we're going to win. That's when faith matters, right? So command me to come to you isn't purely to walk, it's to walk towards Jesus. I love that Peter asks for that. Lord, teach me to go to you. It's not teach me to not think about the storm. Lord, teach me to be better than the other disciples. Lord, help me stand out as a man of faith. None of that. Lord, help me to walk towards you. That's the prayer. Peter falls and he does the right thing. Lord, save me. And then don't miss the fact that immediately Jesus reaches out his hand and catches him. He lets him sink a little bit, but there's not a chance that Peter's going to die here. God's got other plans for him. Jesus shows his disciples in this act, this is so significant, this is the core of ministry. Peter's walking with Jesus. At the end of it, Jesus stretches out his hand and catches him, which means at the end of this situation, Peter's walking hand in hand with Jesus on top of the water while there's a storm going around. He successfully gets exactly where he needs to be. I've heard this taught so many times as Jesus, some, or Peter failing and that he got his eyes off of Jesus. That's true. It's one way to look at this parable. Another way to look at this parable is this is the first mustard seed of faith that Jesus is going to turn into the church. This is the beginning. He's taught him how to do it. He's shown him how to do it. He's done it with him there. Now he's helping Peter see it for the first time. And don't forget, Peter's going to be the cornerstone of the church. This is a big deal. He didn't fail here. He got out of the boat. He didn't fail here. When he started to fall, he said, Lord, save me. He didn't fail here. He walked hand in hand with Jesus back to the body of disciples that are in the boat. Man, if we could all do that, that any time we're leaving the fellowship, which we do every Sunday, we, we eventually say goodbye, we go out into the world that has full of storms and we say, Lord, save me. And the Lord brings us back for the next Sunday so we can get the word the next week. Man, that image of just that faithful lifestyle, it's beautiful. It's so powerful. The word immediately, which I've been pointing out, is euthios. Uh, the fact that Matthew uses it three times, I don't think is an a- accident. That's the perfectness of Jesus in this. These all happen at the same time. So to think that these are stages or step-by-steps, 
Jesus immediately acts in each of these. So that the idea that they follow immediately back in chapter 24, verse 20, here they get in the boat immediately, they're of good cheer immediately, and Jesus takes his hand immediately. And they all happen together immediately. Follow him, get in the boat with other disciples, be of good cheer, take Jesus' hand and walk with him. Obey Christ, take joy in Christ, walk with Christ. And it all just fits together. And you're just like, wow, Matthew. Either Matthew's a genius writer or he's inspired by the Holy Spirit in what he's writing here. But there's, this isn't human writing. It fits too well. You can barely plan this kind of thing. The last root word, <laughs> Steph's already heard this because I was excited during the week about this. The word immediately, euthios, we should know that the root word for euthios the last time it got used in Matthew's writing was in the parable of the seeds. Let me read it to you. Some fell on stony places where they didn't have much earth, but they euthios sprang up because they had no depth of earth. They immediately sprang up. So this idea that it would have struck Peter that maybe his heart's on stony ground because he's excited about something, he jumps into it quick, then he starts to fall into the ocean, and Jesus has to save him himself to get him out of that situation. Uh, we see that image of people getting saved. They get super excited about it, but when the storms come, they fall away. And they, they, they sink under the water, and it's not a good situation spiritually. Um, when Jesus uses... Um, <laughs> this is so perfect. Again, I hope you see what I see here. Um, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is a rhetorical question, and we don't need an answer because it's not relevant. Peter's walking with Jesus at this point. But the word there, little faith, is oligopistos. Little being oligo, pistos being faith. Will God provide for you? Chapter 6, verse 30. Oligopisto. Little faith will get, God will provide for you. When there's wind and storms, back in chapter 8, verse 26, oligopistos is used there. It gets used in this passage. O you of little faith, oligopistos. And then we're going to see it again in chapter 16, verse 8, where there's Ron thinking about the Lord, but they still have a little faith, and that's all he needs. So every time this gets used, you could read a legal pistos as either the first seed of faith that God needs for provision to deal with the winds and storms, to walk with him, or you could see, you could see this as an insult, like you, your little faith, oh, your tiny faith, that's why you failed. Your faith wasn't big enough. But the question Jesus asks here is not, why was your faith so small? Do notice that. It's, why did you doubt? So, oh, you of little faith, oh, oligopistos. It's almost like he's using it like a nickname. Oh, oligopistos, oh, baby faith. And oligo there is baby. It's tiny or puny. <laughs> oh, puny faith, why did you doubt? Because Jesus recognizes where Peter's at in his spiritual growth. He's a baby faither. And we're all baby faithers. So that if the nickname here isn't, the accusation isn't that Peter didn't have enough faith. It's that he doubted despite that he had a little faith. You little baby faither, why did you doubt in this situation? He actually calls Peter by the name, if you want to read it that way. Oh, you baby faither, or itty bitty faith person. Later, he calls Peter the rock of his church, right? Jesus uses nicknames. And oligos is used back in chapter 937. Truly the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are oligos. That's an interesting read. 
Jesus uses this word little, faith, in some really cool ways. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are oligos. They're little baby faithers, right? And God doesn't need big faith. He needs a little faith to get going because we don't really add anything to the equation anyways. We add a couple loaves and some fishes, but God does everything for 20,000 people, 20,000 people. And if even a few of those could eat like me, they need a lot more than just a bite because it says they all got full, right? Maybe when he first says baby faith, it sounds like it's lacking. The laborers are few. But maybe what God's looking for is lots of people with baby faith that he can get the glory when he works through them. Maybe that's another way to read these passages. In chapter 15, uh, we're going to see a feeding of the 5,000 again, and there's subtle changes between each one. And Jesus says to them, how many loaves have you? And they said, seven. And oligos, little fishes. It's interesting how they respond to him. It's like they learned a lesson. It's really cool. Not only is seven the number of divine completion and it's perfect, but they've learned from the first instance where they were trying to send the people away. But in the second instance, Jesus just says, how many loaves do you got? And they say, perfect. And oligos fishes. We got the perfect number of loaves and we got baby faith. In other words, we're good to go, Jesus. We got this. Like, you can do whatever you want. So one way to look at oligos or oligos pistos is that the disciples are learning what Jesus wants from his people. I think sometimes we think Jesus wants so much from us that we really, if we're honest, we don't have it to give. But if we just give him a little, if we give him what we have, he can take that and multiply it. Some 40, some 60, some 100 fold. So they use the same word. All we're, we're all set, Lord. All we have is puny. <laughs> and they use that word. And this is good. And this is a good prayer for the Lord. Lord, I got nothing. You can have it. <laughs> Let's roll. I'm good to go with what you got. Amen. And you just move forward with that attitude. I've always wondered why Matthew used to tell, why he tells these nearly identical stories. Why are there two feedings of the thousands in the book of Matthew? But when I look at it through this lens, oh, it might he's explaining that the disciples have grown between the first one and the second one. And they've taken a very different approach to what faith is, what it looks like. It's like the disciples are learning. And Matthew's trying to show that. In the second feeding of the, in, in chapter 15, um, they don't ask to send anybody away. They serve without the command to do it. So they, there's a lot of differences between the two stories, but we'll get there at the, the second time we go through it. Um, the disciples are at their best when they give Jesus their baby faith and their little puny provisions that they have, and they start moving. Baby faith can move mountains. Matthew 17, in other words, there's a theme growing through the back of Matthew. Matthew chapter 17, if you flip forward a page or two, verse 20, <laughs> here it is again. Don't miss, this is oligopistos. Because you have oligopistos, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. He doesn't need big faith. He needs baby faith. And that's exactly where God wants us to be. He doesn't need us to be perfect, competent, good. None of it. Take what we have, give it to the Lord. And if all you have is time, give it to the Lord. There's a broom and the room needs sweeping, give it to the Lord. If there's a 20,000 people that need food, start feeding them. And the Lord can use those sorts of things. God doesn't need his servants to be great. 
He needs them to be willing. That's the difference. Why did you doubt? <laughs> Note that Jesus asks Peter that question while he's on the water, while there's still a storm going on. Why did you doubt? The word doubt in that passage in the Greek means to divide something in two, to split. Doubt, being the enemy of faith, is to split our attention between Jesus and anything else. This is why God doesn't like idol worship. This is why God doesn't like anything that takes our attention off of him. In asking why, Jesus is actually teaching Peter in this passage, I think. What caused it, Peter? What made you split your attention? You were so focused on me, and then all of a sudden you started looking at the wind. Notice the wind is the fake thing. The thing you really got to be scared of is the water. But he's scared of the air. He's scared of the wind. He's not scared of the water. Rational people would be, even fishermen, would be scared of water. But Peter's scared of the wind. He has past experience with storms. It is reasonable to be scared of the water, um, but he starts looking at the wind for some odd reason. It, try, and as, as we try to understand how God can work in us and what faith is, it's important to understand that doubt is an act of division of attention to put our focus on anything else besides Jesus. Then the wind ceased. Another miracle. And the word ceased there is like it ceased abruptly. So the disciples are stunned at what just happened. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When God takes, when we give him our little faith and we start to see those things happen, the proper response of the disciple is worshipping the Lord God Almighty. It's why we take time on Sunday nights. It's like, what's the Lord doing in your life? We need to tell each other what's going on. I just saw Jesus walking on the water. Yeah, me too. We all did. And you can start to share those things and you realize God's doing a miracle amongst his people and it's amazing. And it's not firecrackers and all that sort of thing. It's usually very soft and quiet, like take my hand and we're going to walk on the water together. So they worshiped him. They gave it to him. Truly, this is the disciples for the first time understanding faith. They understand that the very first sentiment of faith is that Jesus is the son of God. That's the truth of the matter. So Jesus accepts that praise because he is the Son of God. God's word leads to faith. God then gives assurance, which leads to worship, which leads them right back to the word of God. And it's this beautiful cycle of maturity for the Christian believer. The word, faith, assurance, worship, and back to the word. It's why we get together every week and study it. When that happens, look at where Matthew goes next. And when they crossed over, verse 34, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, Jesus, they sent out into the, all that region and brought to him all who were sick and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as were touched, it were made perfectly well. The storm, the feeding of the, the, the 5,000, leads right into this idea where we have this thing where now the multitudes start to grab onto faith too. And they, they're not on the roadside where the enemy can take them away or chop their heads off. They're not in stony ground where they get excited really quick, but then everything fizzles out. They're not in thorny places where their attention's divided between Jesus and the storm. And that divided attention chokes off the word of God. Now they're in a place where people are just worshiping the Lord Jesus and there's good soil there. It's a picture of good soil. All who were sick, they begged that they might only touch him. 
So Jesus allows this thing of touching. We've seen in Matthew already, he can heal without the touching thing. But he allows this thing where if we just touch the hem of his garment, um, which doesn't need to happen, but for some reason when it comes to baby faithers, maybe God sees the heart and that's okay. God can take people where they're at. So even though God can do so much more than just like touch the hem, get healed thing, God could just heal the whole crowd instantly if he wanted to. But he liked the idea that people would reach out to Jesus to get their healing, just like Peter reaches out to Jesus and says, Lord, save me, and he does immediately. So we see that idea that uh, strongly implies that when they touched the helm of his robe, they were made perfectly well. So there was an immediate response <clears throat> to reaching out and touching Jesus. So we get this picture of faith uh, where good soil happens, where roots can go deep. We keep our eyes on Jesus, even in the wind and waves, even when we can't, which I couldn't help but thinking with Moses and the bronze serpent. You remember that story? Like, I wouldn't be doing justice if I don't connect this. Moses made a bronze serpent. He put it on a pole or a stake. Um, and so it was if the serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. God didn't need to use the bronze serpent. But sometimes he gives these little things that, out of mercy, I think, where people realize I got to keep my eyes up. And literally the pole would be like a cross. I got to keep my eyes on the cross and not on the snakes that are at my feet even though it's perfectly reasonable to be worried about snakes at your feet. Nothing unrational about that. But faith sometimes takes a choice to choose to focus on something other than the snakes, other than the storms, other than the news cycle, other than the, the things in our life that draw our attention away from the Lord. So the serpent on the pole didn't heal anybody. Jesus' robe didn't heal anybody. Or that Roman centurion that rolled the dice for it, he would have been a millionaire very shortly after Jesus. But... The robe doesn't do anything, but it does give humans a touch point. And I think sometimes that's when we study God's word and we commit ourselves to the study of his word and then go out and do what we read. That's a touch point for us too. And God gives us that because we need it. The book, I've seen people like treat their Bibles like it's some holy artifact. It's not. It's a book with pages in it. The book doesn't, the, the material doesn't save you, but it's a touch point for us through his word to know what we need to know to put our faith in the Lord God Almighty. So the point here is look to Jesus. That's our spiritual focus, nowhere else. And chapter 14 then gives us everything we need to know about our faith. And I think it's really assuring that we don't need to have super faith. Jesus trains and works with baby faithers all the time. And he loves his little baby faithers. This world has nothing for me, but it has everything. You can kill the worker, but the work's going to go on. You can kill John the Baptist, but the, the kingdom's still growing by the thousands. You can live in a palace like Herod and have everything this world offers, but be, feel threatened by a prophet that says you're breaking the law. You can do everything you please, but God guards the soul in his holy law. You can shrug off the law, but you can't shrug off the guilt. You can imprison and starve John the Baptist. And while you do that, Jesus is going to go feed thousands of people right under your nose. You can behead John. Jesus is going to raise Peter out of the water. And he's going to raise up a new person to be a, a speaker of, of his word. You can have rage and create fear. God can calm the storms immediately and instantly. You can doubt as God's people walk in faith and trust in Almighty God, and you can create false gods 
um, like Thunder Perfect Mind, Neo Isis, Egyptian worshiping stuff. You can just make stuff up if you want to. Thanks, Lisa, for that. And they mimic aspects of God, but they're not God. And they don't heal and they don't save. So you can believe whatever you want, but God remains the great I am. That at the end of the day, you choose who you serve. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this chapter on faith. And Lord, may it sink into good and fertile soil. May you've prepared our hearts so that we come before you, Lord, with undivided attention and and we follow you. And we follow you despite everything else that's going on, Lord, because we know that you can bear fruit and you can make our lives, Lord, be so valuable in your service that we can't do on our own. Lord, I feel sorry for Herod who, who... was ashamed of what he did and he and but he still gave himself over to the world and he let the enemy just snatch up his seed i feel sorry for those in the multitude that didn't understand what jesus was doing Um, i feel sorry lord for the the people that walked away and missed out on so so much and lord for those with a divided attention those that that get caught up with the wind and the waves and they forget that there's a lord standing right in front of them so lord help us to gather in the boat Help us to reach out to you. Help us to memorize the prayer, Lord, save me. Um, Lord, help us to take what baby faith we have and offer it up to you so that we can feed those around us. Like, Lord, just help us to to understand these things in our day-to-day walk. And as we leave this room here today, Lord, I pray that each person here finds opportunities to exercise their baby faith and and offer that up to you as a, a sweet sacrifice. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.